You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, Real Presence Radio listeners. We want to thank you for staying with us on Real Presence Live this morning. And I hope that you're enjoying, um, well, you enjoyed our first guest and, and his story about Michelle Dupong. And before we go on to our next interview... Uh, if you've missed any of today's segments and you, or miss any of today's segments and you are interested in them, you can find the podcast for this show and all of the other past Real Presence Live shows at realpresenceradio.com or on Spotify, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. So if there's something that you would like to share with another person that you heard, you can direct them there as well. And also, I'd like to give a shout-out to the St. Thomas More Society of North Dakota, which is uh, a group of uh, North Dakota attorneys and judges, and to welcome them to our listening audience. If you haven't been here before, I know uh, I, I sent a t- uh, kind of a response email out to everybody, encouraging them to listen in because we've got, uh, we're talking about St. Thomas More with Steve Weidenkopf uh, during this half hour. And in our last half hour, we have a Judge uh, Conrad who's talking, uh, he's going to discuss a book that he wrote about uh, these two saints. But uh, uh, right now, let's get with Steve. Steve is kind of our, uh, uh, this is about your, what, maybe your fourth time on the air with Doreen and me? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah good morning. Right. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, then. I think we're going to start referring to you as our uh, as our resident, our historian in residence, and uh, that should at least get you a real presence radio baseball cap, I would think. <laughs> oh, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. I'd enjoy that. Yeah, we're we're pretty we're fast and loose with our swagger on here. <laughs> well, well, welcome back. Right, we're well. back. We're really glad to have you. And this is actually the memorial. Of Saints John Fisher and Thomas More, and and um, you're going to kind of talk to us about the the English Reformation, if you will, which was kind of the backdrop of uh, of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, thanks for having me on the show, and always a pleasure to come and talk with you all, and especially about Catholic history. And yeah, you know, t- today's saints are are obviously very well known. At least Thomas More is, I think, most especially, and and I think sometimes Saint John Fisher. It's a little plays a little second fiddle to Thomas More uh, in terms of popular recognition, although he, he shouldn't, because uh, both of these men were extremely uh, important to the time period of the, the what I call the Protestant Revolution, or commonly referred to as the Protestant Reformation. This 16th century event, which really you know tore asunder the fabric and unity of Christendom, uh, it began as we know on the continent with the revolt of Martin Luther, and then progressed to some other. Uh, initial uh, individuals and theologians who rebelled against the Church's teachings uh, as well that we've talked about on the show previously. And, uh, you know, the great Catholic historian and uh, English politician, Hilar Belloc, uh, he referred to this time period that we're going to discuss today as the English accident. Hmm. And he called it the English accident because it was somewhat, in his mind, accidentally that England uh, embraced this revolution, theological revolution that began on the continent of Europe, and then which led ultimately to England breaking away from the Church. And it was accidental because it didn't start as some kind of, you know, heresy uh, indigenous to England. It didn't start as some kind of, you know, um, 
angry English theologian who was angry at the church and some of the church's teachings began this open revolt or rebellion as it did on the continent. But rather, it was kind of accidental. It happened because of the whims of the English monarch of the time who wanted a change in his marital status recognized by the church and by the Pope in particular. And of course, referring to King Henry VIII, who is, is of course, well known, uh, you know, throughout our, our history in, in, in the United States. Uh, just from our, our breaking away from England and the acknowledgement of our, our English past, if you will. But it even begins a little bit before uh, Henry VIII, and it began with his father. So Henry Tudor, who eventually becomes Henry VII, um, had a spurious claim to the throne of England. He was a Welsh usurper, if you will. And he, the Tudor family, came to the throne of England uh, as a result of the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. That's where Henry VII, or Henry Tudor, uh, defeated King Richard III and then claimed the throne. And so the Tudors always had this kind of, you know, uh, aura around them in terms of whether their claim was legitimate or not. And so they were very, um, you know, that was a great uh, priority for them to ensure that they had an uninterrupted succession to the throne. And so Henry VIII, who's Henry VII's son, he comes to the throne in 1509, and he's married to uh, Catherine of Aragon. And Catherine of Aragon was a Spanish princess who was the daughter of King Fernando and Isabel of Spain. Uh, and she came, to, although a foreigner, came to England, was very much beloved by the English people. And for at least the first decade or so of her marriage to Henry, things were, were fairly well with the two of them, if you will. Henry was pretty much devoted to, to Catherine, loved Catherine. But about a decade into their marriage, uh, and being on the throne for a time, Henry's eye began to wander to many of the different ladies uh, at the court, uh, and he um, you know, set his, his path on, on an adulterous path, if you will, engaging in all kinds of various mischief with various mistresses. But eventually, um, the one, one lady of court who came to really dominate his attention was Anne Boleyn. And Anne was different from Henry's previous mistresses. The previous mistresses were very much just very happy to be um, in Henry's you know, eye and have its attention and didn't really want much more than that. But Anne, Anne was very different from the rest of these mistresses. She wanted Henry's um, open recognition of their relationship and, and to the point where she wanted Henry to divorce Catherine and to then marry Anne uh, legitimately and then declare her to be the queen of England. She wanted much more than these other mistresses. And so she kind of was the one behind the throne, if you will, pushing Henry to engage in um, this more legitimate path of trying to get rid of Catherine. And so in the year 1527, in the year 1527, uh, Henry sends some representatives to Rome to request uh, a declaration of nullity, or a commonly we call that uh, an annulment, from the Pope for his marriage to Catherine. And there's some, you know, some theological distinctions associated with his marriage to Catherine. Catherine had obviously, uh, uh, had previously been married to his brother, Arthur Tudor, um, although that marriage was very brief. They were very young when it occurred. It was a politically arranged marriage, and Catherine maintained throughout her life that that marriage was never consummated, her relationship with Arthur. Therefore, there was no real sacramental marriage between the two of them because it wasn't consummated. But despite that, um, because of the appearances and whatnot of it, uh, the marriage to Henry and Catherine did receive a dispensation from a previous pope, Julius II, 
in order for Henry to marry uh, the, 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 the widowed um, uh, you know, uh, wife of his brother. So there was a dispensation there previously to this particular marriage. Henry thought, and some theologians in England thought, it would be very easy for Pope Clement VII at the time now, in 1527, to grant an annulment. It really shouldn't be that big of a deal. So English representatives went down to Rome to present their case before Pope Clement VII. Um, it just so happened that when they were there, there was another major event happening in Rome. And what happened in Rome uh, in, in 1527 was a huge sack. Uh, imperial troops uh, from Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, most of whom were this cadre of Lutheran Germans, were very angry at the Pope and at the Church, had actually uh, invaded Italy, had gone into the city of Rome, and were uh, occupying it and besieging it, and so Pope Clement VII was actually holed up, if you will, in Castel San Angelo, um, in the middle of the city with all these, these foreign imperial German Lutheran troops kind of running all over the city, creating havoc. Uh, and it just so happened that Charles V's aunt uh, was Queen Catherine of Aragorn. So you can imagine these English representatives showing up to Pope Clement VII and saying, hey, my, my king wants a, a divorce from his wife, he wants a declaration of nullity from his wife, um, she happens to be the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor, whose troops are in your city, rampaging everything. So the Pope obviously wasn't in a position to listen to them or to grant their request. He had other things on his mind. So what he did do, though, was he allowed a marriage tribunal to be opened in England, where the question of the marriage between Henry and Catherine could commence, where evidence would be gathered and collected in this trial, um, you know, an ecclesiastical trial, and all that evidence would be gathered, and all the testimony would be gathered and sent to Rome for Clement VII then to make to make a decision. Um, now, when that tribunal opened, it was quite interesting, right? There was Henry and Catherine both had um, ecclesial representation, right? They had lawyers, ecclesial lawyers, canon lawyers, if you will, representing their case. And on the side of uh, Queen Catherine was uh, one bishop, who was one of her primary um, canon lawyers or representatives, and that was St. John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester. And he tried to present her case and provide testimony from her that showed that the bond between Catherine and Henry was legitimate and should be upheld by the Pope. There were other clerics who were representing the king who tried to convince uh, and present evidence and testimony to the contrary to that. Um, so that's that's where St. John Fisher kind of enters into the story here of what's going on in England uh, between Henry and Catherine and their marriage. So did Henry see um, John Fisher as an enemy then? Is that... Yeah, yeah I, don't, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not certain he saw him at that point specifically as an enemy. Uh, that comes in a little bit later, but I'm sure it would have come to his eye, right, that this was the, the particular bishop who was representing uh, his wife, whom he wanted uh, to, you know, to to divorce, in essence. Um, so, you know, and John Fisher, ultimately, at the end of that tribunal, evidence was collected. It was then sent to Rome. Um, and when a, when a vote was taken among all the 300 bishops in England at the time as to, you know, which side they should fall on, uh, there were only few, a handful that actually sided with Queen Catherine, and one of those who did was St. John Fisher. The rest of the bishops lined up behind their king. Interesting. Okay, well, we're we're coming up on a break right now, and I think this is a good time for one, because I think we've got a lot of the background, and on the other side, maybe we can get it more into uh, where uh, St. Thomas More fit into this as well. 
Uh, you're listening to Real Presence Live with Jack and Doreen Canelli as your host, and we're talking with Steve Weidenkoff about uh, St. Thomas More and uh, St. John Fisher and uh, their place in the English uh, revolution or reformation, I guess, depending on accident. Uh, or the uh, accident, as you will. So stay with us, and we'll be right back with more on the other side of the break. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, the Director of Advancements for Real Presence Radio with today's Plan Giving Minute. Philanthropy is an expression of your generosity with the understanding that your gift to the church will make a difference. There are many ways in which you can make a gift to further God's work. Most of us are familiar with cash gifts we give regularly to Real Presence Radio. However, another way of contributing is through plan giving, which may allow you to give more than you've ever dreamed possible. The goal of plan giving is to help you plan your estate and charitable giving in a way that benefits you, your family, and our mission. There are several ways you can make these plan gifts and enjoy tax and income benefits. For more information, please visit our plan giving website at rprlegacy.org or call me at 701-290-4503. Let's get started. SJ Machine, proudly named after and dedicated to St. Joseph, provides machining and induction heat treating to a variety of industries. Just as St. Joseph worked diligently to meet his family's needs, SJ Machine strives to understand and meet our customers' production needs. Prototype to production, working together towards success. SJ Machine can be reached at 701-347-0155 and are a proud supporter of the Real Presence Radio Network. The Mustard Seed Catholic Store is South Dakota's place to purchase Catholic books, gifts, and decor. With locations in Rapid City and Sioux Falls, we are here to provide you with gifts for the Catholic occasions in your life. From baptism to First Communion, confirmation to weddings, and ordinations, we pride ourselves in having local artists share their creative talents, making rosaries, crucifixes, artwork, coffee, and books. We are located in Rapid City on Main Street, in the new Diocesan Building, or in Sioux Falls on Grange Avenue across from Costco. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to this segment of Real Presence Live. Uh, But before we get back to uh, our guest, Steve Weidenkopf, I think we're going to have to take a little bit of a break here and let Doreen uh, tell some jokes. Our phone lines just lit up. (laughs) <laughs> because listeners were calling in saying, hey, we want to hear some of Doreen's jokes. So, And we're going to give you two because we kind of left one out of the last segment, I think, didn't we? I guess we did. Okay. okay the, these, two, these two jokes come from people in my life. One, um, some great nieces, my daughter's granddaughters, were over the other day and they told me this joke. Jack already knows the answer. Steve, if you want to try for it. Is this the one that got me in trouble the other day? That will be the second one that came from someone else. Okay, the first joke is, what do you call a fly that has no wings? Steve, you're supposed to answer this one. (laughs) Yeah, I know. A fly with no wings? I I don't know, actually. A walk. A walk. (laughs) 
I love the. I, I, I got to take my headsets off. The, the laughter is just kind of too much. <laughs> okay. The, the next one came from a parishioner. Um, her name was Lois, and this she, one got me in trouble because Dreen was telling it to a group, okay. and I forgot that I had actually heard it, and so I blurted out the uh, the, the, <laughs> the answer. answer. Okay, so what's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? A hippo and a zippo. Um, one letter. I don't know. A hippo's heavy, but a zippo's just a little lighter. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we can get back to the okay. serious business of St. John and St. Thomas. I yep. like that last joke. I might, I might use that, that last joke there and if, when I give a presentation. I'll, I'll make sure to credit you, Doreen. <laughs> you have to credit it to Lois Black. <laughs> yes. Lois Black. Okay, yes, absolutely. Okay, back. <laughs> go, back to, go back to England. Yeah, yes. so, um, so we, we, we last left our, our, our English uh, brethren here in, uh, where there was a marriage tribunal that Pope Clement VII allowed to occur to, to gather evidence and testimony concerning the bond between Catherine and Henry. Um, and Catherine was very upset with the proceedings, obviously, after that vote came out from the bishops where all but one really sided with the king. St. John Fisher sided with her. She wrote a letter to the Pope um, telling him, you know, how she thought this was unfair and it was unjust. And so he wrote another letter back to England, and he, he in essence, canceled, if you will, the tribunal. He closed it uh, and remanded the case himself and said that he would take whatever evidence had been gathered and testimony had been gathered up to that point, and he would make a decision on the bond between the king and queen later. Um, this greatly angered, as you can imagine, Henry, he thought, and was promised by many of his advisors, including Cardinal Wolseley, that this would be a pretty easy thing and that Clement would grant this quite quickly. And when it didn't occur, he was angry, and so his wrath turned to Cardinal Wolseley, and he was relieved of his duty as Lord Chancellor of England. And into his shoes then came another individual that we speak today is today, and that's St. Thomas More. St. Thomas More was well-known beforehand, was a lawyer, um, an advisor, as well, royal advisor, a man of letters, um, you know, a brilliant individual, a great family man as well. But he then was asked by Henry to step into Cardinal Wolsey's shoes and become Lord Chancellor of England, which uh, Thomas More did. This is in 1529. Um, so now Henry here is in a quandary. The case has been remanded to Rome. There's no decision yet. He really wants to uh, divorce Catherine. He wants to marry Anne. Anne is pressuring him for that. And so he's trying to figure out what his next step should be. And at that point, Another individual, another advisor comes into his life, a man by the name of Thomas Cromwell. And Cromwell brings to Henry this idea and says, you know, Lord King, you are sovereign of everything here in the kingdom, um, all things, right? Everyone is subject to you. Why should the church also not be subject to you? Why do you have to listen to this foreign prince, if you will, this, the Pope in Rome? Um, if you're the king of everything in England, you should be the king of everything in England, including the, the, uh, the church as well. And so he suggested that Henry threaten to remove the Church, if you will, from or remove England from, from communion with the Church in Rome if he wasn't given his annulment. Uh, and so Henry began the path. He embraced Cromwell's idea and advice and began to then proceed on the path of doing just that. In 1531, he held a series of or a convocation with his clergy uh, in which all the bishops and priests of the realm were called to a meeting, and they were ordered by the king to follow certain um, restrictions, certain restrictions, and certain regulations. Basically, this was an attempt at this meeting in 1531 by King Henry to control the church. Ultimately, uh, it became known, or it is known in history, 
submission of the clergy because it's there at that meeting where, in essence, the bishops and, and clerics of England handed over authority of ecclesiastical matters, uh, basically church governance and church discipline, to the king. Uh, and when that occurred in 1531, St. Thomas More, if you will, kind of saw the writing on the wall and saw where these things and where this was leading and where this was going, and that ultimately would lead to a break with Rome. And he decided that he wanted no part of that and could no longer maintain his position in the government. So he resigned as Lord Chancellor of England um, and went back to just living his, you know, a private life, if you will, away from politics and away from royal service, at least for a period of time. Ultimately, then, fast-forwarding into the year 1534, eventually Pope Clement VII does finally provide his official response to the king's request for a declaration of melody to his marriage to Catherine. And Pope Clement VII sided with the bond, in this case, the marriage bond, meaning he ruled that the bond between Catherine and Henry is legitimate and valid and cannot be then dissolved. Um, which, again, as you can imagine, greatly angered uh, Henry VIII this time, much more so than previously. Uh, and then he began uh, on a path of following Thomas Cromwell's advice to its ultimate conclusion and breaking the Church in England from the Church in Rome. So in that same year, 1534, he had Parliament meet. They passed a series of five legislative acts, which then separated the Church from England, or from the Church in England from Rome. The two, the two in particular acts that are of importance to our story here, the Thomas More and John Fisher, were the last two acts that were passed by uh, Parliament in 1534. One was called the Act of Secession, which meant that the, the Act of Secession declared, in essence, Henry's marriage to Catherine to be invalid and to be null. But then his um, subsequently, uh, or previous to this um, legislation, Henry had actually married Anne, so it, this act then declared Anne's marriage to Henry to be valid. Uh, the daughter that had been already born from that marriage as well, Elizabeth, was declared the legitimate heir to the throne, not Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Henry and Catherine. This act of succession also re- re- required subjects, uh, citizens in England to take an oath, an oath of secession, meaning that they agreed with, with what were the contents of the oath, and it included the oath did a direct an explicit denial of papal authority over the Church in England. Then the last act was the Act of Supremacy in 1534, which declared the king to be the supreme head of the Church in England. That also required an oath. Refusing to take that oath uh, was, was a treasonous act. One could be arrested, imprisoned, and even executed as a result of it. Now, once these acts were passed, Henry then had his minions go out and request the oath of, of the clerics and the bishops within England, uh, most of them uh, took the oath. Uh, many refused. There were several martyrs early on here in London, especially a group of Carthusian monks who refused to take the oath, uh, and they were martyred and killed. Eventually, John Fisher was asked to take the oath as well. He refused to do so. He was arrested, put into the Tower of London. Um, actually, while he was in the Tower of London, he was created a cardinal by now Pope Paul III, the successor to Clement VII. Uh, and Henry basically responded to the Pope creating John Fisher a cardinal. He, in essence, said, well, let the Pope send him a hat uh, for when it arrives. He will have no head to put it upon. Whoa. Um, yeah, so unfortunately um, for John Fisher, he was ultimately uh, tried and convicted of treason. He was executed by beheading on June 22nd, 
1535. His head was then placed on a spike on London Bridge for two weeks, and eventually as a sign to others, and eventually then thrown into the Thames. Same thing happened to Thomas More a little bit later. He also was requested to take the oath of secession. He refused, was arrested, imprisoned in the Tower, and he was in the Tower of London for over 15 months, or for 15 months, rather, for over a year. Ultimately, he, as well, like John Fisher, tried and convicted of treason, was um, was then executed by beheading on July 6, 1535. Uh, He tied his own blindfold before his execution and told the crowd that he would die in the faith and for the faith of the Catholic Church, being the king's good servant, but God's first. And so we so we celebrate these two brave men uh, and their allegiance to the church, their refusal to obey uh, illegitimate political authority uh, on the same day, on this day, June 27. Did John Fisher and Thomas More know each other? Yeah, good question. They absolutely would have known of each other. I'm not certain uh, that whether or not they, they may have you know, had I don't think they had any kind of real friendship, if you will. I, they must have. They they definitely knew of each other, um, and it probably would not. Um, it was very probable that they did actually meet uh, in the course of their various uh, you know activities and lives, or at least were in the same room, perhaps for various things, maybe a parliament together. But um, but yeah, no evidence that I know of that they were friendly or, or knew. Um, each other in a more intimate kind of way, who had professional to, way. Uh, Go ahead. Steve, who had to sign that declaration of allegiance to the king? Was it every citizen, or was it just those who held positions of authority in England? Yeah, ultimately, it was, that's a good question. Ultimately, the, the act specified that every subject was liable to take the oath, oh. but it wasn't something you voluntarily did. They had, the government came to you and, and then requested you to do it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, thanks, Steve. As you can hear from the music, where our time is up. We're coming up on a hard break. Uh, and um, for our listeners, you've been listening to Steve Weidenkopf. And we have more to come on the other side of the break with Caitlin Ripplinger about uh, talking about her uh, uh, efforts to restore the culture. And stay with us, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. <laughs> 